Hi, I'm Lisa Brenner, letting you know that my new film, Say My Name, will be available in selected theaters and on demand starting June 14th. It's a madcap British comedy about love, one night stands, and criminals who shoot themselves in the leg. To find out more, go to the Say My Name Movie Facebook page or simply search the hashtag Say My Name Movie on whatever social media you use, and you might just see me in a sex scene. That's all I'm saying. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by Jodorowsky's Dune producer Steve Scarlatta and Josh Miller, where they explore some of the greatest movies that were never made, from E.T. 2 to Tim Burton's Superman, Night Skies to Star Trek The Academy Years. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of Star Trek, check out my new sci-fi TV series, Pandora, debuting on The CW and around the world on July 9th, starring Priscilla Quintana and Oliver Dench, and you can find out more by downloading the Unboxing Pandora podcast, available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. Get ready to join the Inglorious Trexperts live at San Diego Comic-Con as they boldly go to the greatest Comic-Con on Earth. We'll be there. Will you? Meet all your favorite and least favorite Inglorious Trexperts hosts as they talk Trek live and in person, only at San Diego Comic-Con. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. Hey, welcome back to another exciting episode of our tribute to Star Trek The Motion Picture's 40th anniversary. And I am just so delighted because we are going to be dealing with a star before time, the great late Jerry Goldsmith. And star I have beyond some, time. Beyond, beyond time, time. Beyond. Beyond Ontario's. Uh, <laughs> uh, we have some great returning guests, some new guests. We got a, we got a guest galore here. So uh, before we get into uh, honoring, uh, continuing our 40th anniversary celebration, I want to introduce you once again, uh, the writer of Thor and X-Men First Class. He was a writer-producer on Black Sails and Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicle. Mr. Right. Ashley, I said it right. Ashley E. Miller is back. Hello, hello. Welcome, Ashley. And uh, we also have our who better to talk about the music of Star Trek, the motion picture, than the man who wrote the book, literally wrote the book, the music of Star Trek. That man, he's been a guest on our sister podcast many times, Disco Nights, but now he's in the A-list. Now he's on the in the major leagues. <laughs> he's he's here for the big shoe. Uh, Mr. Jeff Bond. Welcome, and Jeff. I finally made it. Thank you. And Thank I want to say me. that Jeff has a remarkable new book out. Uh, called The Fantasy Worlds of Irwin Allen. It is um, available uh, via, um, what's the URL? Uh, CreatureFeatures.com. CreatureFeatures.com. And check it out because it is a beautiful, beautiful book. If you're a fan of Irwin Allen, you got to check it out. You know, Jeff's done other books like The World of the Orville and um, uh, The Making of Narcos, but this is just a whole nother level of awesomeness. So check it out. And... Now, he's back. Now, you're probably still recovering from the last time he was on. He was so great and so candid and was just a great guest. He was a creator of Film Score Monthly. He is a film music scholar and producer, and um, he's done a, a zillion liner notes. And uh, one of my favorite guests we've ever had on the show, Mr. Lucas Kendall, is back. Well, hello. Thank you. Didn't hey. think I'd be back, but... 
Like, no, are you kidding? <laughs> How could we not have you back? We did an episode uh, a while ago on the uh, music of Star Trek where we talked about the original series and, of course, uh, uh, subsequent shows uh, where the music's less impressive. But um, It was explosive. It was an explosive episode. <laughs> well, and, I can and do that again. Just like, let me know where the dial is. was a great guest. But, you know, we realized, you know, as we were m- making our way, and we've done some great shows on the 40th anniversary of Star Trek The Motion Picture. We had Walter Koenig here talking about Chekhov's Enterprise. Um, we, we, we had uh, Mike Mattesino and David Fine here to talk about the wonderful director's edition. Um, we, we, we've done a bunch of episodes now on, on Star Trek The Motion Picture 40th. Uh, but we would be remiss if we didn't talk about one of the great motion picture scores of all time made under the most difficult of circumstances. And of course, I'm referring to Jerry Goldsmith's brilliant Star Trek The Motion Picture score. Uh, I still have the LP from when I was a kid. Sure. Uh, I don't think the grooves are still there because I, I played it so many <laughs> worn times. Worn out the grooves. Uh, wore, wore out the grooves of that LP. Uh, of course, it's been reissued many times. Uh, the most recent and certainly the best is La La Land's remarkable three-disc three, set. Uh, uh, they also reissued, uh, I believe, an LP of it, if I'm not Indeed. mistaken. Um, it is a remarkable. So if you are inspired to go out and seek out this music after listening to the show, I strongly suggest uh, you go to lalalandrecords.com and get the uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture Motion Picture 3 limited edition 3 CD set, which is just phenomenal. Uh, but I want to turn it over to the experts now. These are the guys who can tell you why this is such an extraordinary motion picture soundtrack, but also made under the most difficult of circumstances. So uh, yes, tell us of this music. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think uh, that uh, Jerry Goldsmith might have been, uh, you know, after Robert Wise, one of the first uh, major uh, talents hired to work on Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Uh, he was a very kind of important part of the package. Uh, once it start go, started becoming the motion picture and, you know, wasn't Star Trek Phase Two the television series or whatever the previous iterations of it were. And there, there were, you know, we looked at memos when we were working on the um, the three-disc CD set. We looked, got to see a bunch of materials at USC, I think. And, uh, you know, some of the memos, you know, were d- addressing very uh, specifically the music aspect, you know, way before they got rolling, they talked about the fact that th- this movie would be a great opportunity to showcase music and that there w- there would be, you know, extended se- visual sequences extended. where there wouldn't be a lot of, uh, yeah, <laughs> wouldn't be a lot of dialogue and the music would really be driving the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Jerry Goldsmith, uh, I think at, at this point, he uh, people always kind of think of John Williams as the you know premier film composer and the most popular film composer, which he, he is, that he ultimately became. At this point in time, John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith were more kind of jockeying for position, and they were both getting you know very uh, big A-list movie projects. Uh, but there's a there's kind of a, a continuing uh, saga of Jerry Goldsmith always getting kind of the the leftovers uh, of John Williams projects, and this is a big example. As much as we love Star Trek: The Motion Picture, um, it was somewhat in the shadow of Star Wars. You know, Star Wars came out in 1977. Heard uh, of it? The, the score the score <laughs> to Star Wars, you know, became one of the greatest selling albums of all time. The most one of the most popular pieces of of music, period, let alone film music. And one of the great gatefold sleeves of ALP. Yeah, exactly. So it it, it had a big influence. I'm, I'm sure that's one of the, the reasons that they were thinking about, you know, the opportunity to showcase music in Star Trek The Motion Picture was that there had been this previous, you know, record-breaking space movie uh, with, a, a you know, a, a magnificent film score in it. So, um, uh, you know, Jerry Goldsmith, had he had a great reputation as a composer of science fiction music. Mm-hmm. Uh, he done music for the, the Twilight Zone. Uh, he done this weird uh, kind of chase movie about a, a man-made virus called the Satan Bug that has a just a bizarre, fantastic score. And then he did you know Planet of the Apes, The Illustrated Man, and Logan's Run. Uh, so he was kind of the go-to guy before John Williams. If you thought about scoring a science fiction movie, you would get Jerry Goldsmith. Mm-hmm. So, Lucas, you know, one of the things we alluded to is this was a uh, 
you know, we, we've talked in the past about uh, the troubles with Star Trek The Motion Picture having to make, make a release date, but never was this more of a problem than for the composer, uh, Jerry Goldsmith. Can you talk a little bit about um, what a struggle it was to deliver a score and, and what a remarkable achievement it was to produce this kind of music on this kind of schedule? Indeed, I can do this. I'm very qualified to do this. Um, uh, hence your credits. <clears throat> please, right, so, please begin. So music, film music, is uh, it comes last because the movie needs to be done. It needs to be locked. And they had no locked movie, so he was, he was working on the movie. He was on his contract, and he had nothing to do. Um, so it was a it was kind of a maddening process where they would book and they didn't know if they would have music to record. So they would he started um, they hired him in in sort of midsummer and he started on his contract August 1st. And usually the contracts would be 10 weeks. This is the way the old studio deals worked. And they did some of the early scenes that were ready. Uh, he actually redid them, which we'll talk about later. And then there were no special effects, so he couldn't write anything. So they would go, they would get the the big orchestra, the 90-piece or however many-piece orchestra, 20th Century Fox, which where they recorded because they had a big pipe organ, and they'd have nothing to do. So they'd have, they'd be spending an incredible amount of money, and they would just re-record the main title because it was better than doing nothing. Mm-hmm. And then when the when the footage finally came in, he didn't have enough time, so they brought in Fred Steiner, who was a composer for the original series to to ghostwrite basically a handful of cues based on Jerry's themes. They brought in Alexander Courage to do the two uh, versions of the old theme under the, uh, the captain's log. And it was um, just this furious race against time, and they would they recorded the last pieces of music, the Klingon battle, only like a week or less than a week before the premiere. Really, and I had no idea. That's I, we incredible. Have a live, I checked our liner notes before I came here to well, to refresh my memory. Then it must be true. It was it, well, yeah, because we had the, the the documentation. And I want to ask Jeff. I didn't see those USC memos. Did they? Did they speculate about any composer except for Jerry? Well, it's interesting you would say that. Not at the uh, USC uh, uh, memos, uh, but I didn't see anything about other composers there. But we were when I was at the Roddenberry archives last week. They happened to have a, a folder of just music memos. And a lot of it was uh, it was this was early in the process, and it was a lot of uh, I think fan bands like Star Trek fan bands trying to get the gig. Oh my <laughs> you know, there's God. one called like Warp Nine or something. <laughs> uh, you know, submitting uh, ideas. But there was also a letter from uh, I think Herbie Hancock's uh, people. And Herbie Hancock apparently was very hot to get the the Star Trek wow. the motion picture gig, and that, that would have been a, a would have been fantastic uh, a funk wow. pop, funk yeah. jazz uh, s- score. Uh, I don't think that they ever uh, really considered anyone else, and, and certainly not Robert Wise. Robert yeah, Wise, yeah, yeah, that Robert was his Wise, first choice because yeah, they'd worked w- together Wise on the Sand Pebbles. Right, Wise wanted him. They had worked together. And uh, Gold, I think Roddenberry probably was very much on board too because Jerry was on a list of composers uh, for the original series that they were going to try to get. And uh, I think you know Jerry was under contract to different people and and was doing you know probably Man from Uncle at mm-hmm. the time. But he was you know very big uh, both in his kind of early movie career and television at the time. So they couldn't get him uh, for the original series, but I'm sure that uh, Roddenberry, you know, kind of remembered that, and that was a great idea to have him do this movie, finally. And Jerry had won an Oscar for The Omen, which was prestigious. Right. So he was, if you're, if it wasn't going to be Williams, which it couldn't be, it, it, was, it was natural that it would be Jerry. So I've heard two insane stories about the music for this film. The first is that Jerry Goldsmith originally wrote a completely different main title, the second being that there are lyrics to Ilea's theme, 
and Sean Cassidy performed oh, well, okay, those it. Those are two different questions. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That's, 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 <laughs> that's like the ascending order of insanity. He did okay. not really write a different main title, but he right. wrote a completely different theme. Right. Okay. Well, it's not completely. Uh, that was, uh, it's not completely. It's, it's, it's sort of it's the, germ, the, the germ of the idea for what became the theme. And he wrote some of the early cues, the, the dry dock scene and uh, I think the uh, orbital office complex theme which still stays in the in the movie and uh, a, a couple other sequences and it started it's sort of leaning toward uh, that the the March theme but but much more flowing and it's more of a uh, waltz yeah yeah uh, so uh, and it was Robert it was Wise who bumped that, yeah, on Robert it, right? Wise did not like it he felt that he said it reminded him of like western music because mm-hmm. there was this very Conestoga sort of sailing ship yeah right? both both, yeah. both. Yeah. or maybe he didn't know whether the Conestoga he did say Conestoga <laughs> yes. he said Conestoga wagon this is all on the the early music and the description of how it came to exist is all in this La La Land package but so yeah there was never a main title but when he started the recording sessions for the footage they did have in August or September whenever it was he had a, a version of the Star Trek theme that was basically the first half mm. went da 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 and then it was different from the rest mm-hmm. of it okay. you can sort of hear it still in the movie in some little places right. under dialogue but he didn't have it's it very was, unformed it was not the march he didn't have da 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 so it was it was it was sort of aquatic it was more impressionistic he had done uh, for Paramount and Robert Evans uh, the same year. He did this movie called Players, about which nobody has ever seen, uh, about tennis players. And there are a couple of sequences uh, where they're playing tennis. And he wrote this very energetic, like tennis music that has like chimes and and like it's kind of like fox hunting music. And it's got the same kind of energy actually that the the Star Trek March had. And and if you kind of follow Goldsmith's career, it's always kind of morphing between projects. You'll hear a little bit of the last project it, it worm mm. its way into this project, and then ideas for his next project are kind of coming up so that you can he, he had you know so done Ava Satani was the original title yeah, yeah. For he had done Alien the, you know the mm-hmm. same year too you can and you can mm-hmm. hear kind of the uh, some of the avant-garde effects and the, the eerie space sounds you know you can hear in some of the music for Alien but then he was also kind of starting to, to lean in a more romantic direction and kind of leaving he had this kind of gritty avant-garde style he had done in the 60s and 70s and uh, Star Trek is kind of his move into a bigger, bigger romantic, romantic style. Definitely. And it lost the Oscar to A Little Romance by George LaRue. Yeah, somebody, uh, wasn't it Bruce Kimmel uh, talking about that, that, that apparently Bruce, was it Bruce himself, who had, sen- had sent out uh, to a, it, all these LPs or, or cassettes or something to Academy members for this movie, A Little Romance, another movie no one else has seen right. that's got this tiny little... I mean, George Delarue is a great composer, but the this only music anyone remembers from that score is is by another composer. It's a, 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 some Vivaldi <laughs> uh, piece. So, uh, But apparently, uh, at least uh, according to, to Bruce... He was one of the first guys to figure out to, uh, you know, to send promo copies, and that may have influenced the voters. And got, and supposedly, it's also the only. And I can't believe this because Goldsmith lost Oscars for Planet of the Apes and Patton, you know, probably the most iconic score he probably ever wrote. And he apparently the only time he actually was mad about losing an Oscar was for Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about this because, you know, our good friend Alan Spencer uh, was producing Mork and Mindy on the lot at the time. And he tells the story, of course, of how uh, when he would go by the scoring stage, there was a cot set up for Jerry Goldsmith um, uh, where he would take naps because he was literally scoring like 24-7 because uh, of how late the the cut was delivered and and, and the visual effects coming in late. I mean, and the the famous stories, of course, of him scoring slugs because they didn't have the visual effects. Slugs meaning blank film. Yes, not not, 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 slugs. not the animals, <laughs> not not the animals, <laughs> exactly. But just black, where it's saying you know shot to come, right. and he'd have to conjure up this beautiful music for something that didn't exist. Yeah, that's one of the uh, you know uh, 
kind of outcomes of this was that that because the effects sequences were the last things finished that they weren't really edited that they they just had all the footage <laughs> it's like here's the footage we have it's just spliced together and there was no time to shape a lot of the the sequences uh, and you know you always hear people complaining about the dry dock sequence why is this dry dock sequence five, you know five minutes long not us. We're not complaining, yeah, it, but it, it, uh, it, it gave Goldsmiths this opportunity to write these long, complete, you know, completely composed pieces of music, which he right. would not have gotten. And th- there's another thing. There's a great quote in this uh, Return to Tomorrow book. Uh, which actually has interview material from Goldsmith at the time, you know, right after yes. he had done uh, the uh, movie. And and he just talked about how the process affected his writing. And wh- I think wh- one of the reasons this is such a great score is something that Goldsmith didn't intend and probably wouldn't have done if he, he would have just gotten the, the movie complete. Because Goldsmith's uh, approach was usually to kind of write this nugget of material and base everything off of it, all variations of kind of one piece of material. But because he was working on these disconnected sequences over a long piece of time, he would be kind of focusing on one uh, sequence and would come up with kind of more original musical ideas for those sequences. So what people remember about the the Star Trek scores is it's got the Klingon music, it has this music for Vulcan, it's got this very you know flowing space music for the space stations, and then it has this whole incredible kind of you know sonic world for V'ger. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just this completely alien, uh, you know, uh, imposing, weird environment. And it's that all happened because Goldsmith was working on these sequences so kind of far apart from right. each other. And he said that, you know, he finished the, the Klingon sequence last, and he, I think he told Robert Wise at the time that you can hear him start to work his ideas for V'ger, obviously V'ger is on screen, the cloud, and when the Klingon ships are going into the, to the cloud, and you kind of hear his ideas for V'ger integrated into that Klingon music. It's integrated into the rhythmic approach 
of of that sequence. And he said, you know, I, I finally kind of got it and figured it out. By that point, he had had everything in his head so long that he could express it all in, in a more integrated way. But but at the same time, he, the way he got screwed over in his work process kind of made the score more varied than it probably was. Well, would I want to ask Lucas, um, because not since the zither and the third man or the theremin and uh, Day of the Earth Stood Still, has there been something as distinctive and unique and beloved as the blaster beam in Star Trek The Motion Picture? Can you, you sort of talk about integrating that into the score and why that was unique at the time? Sure, I can do that. The uh, <laughs> the blaster beam, which is that thing that when I was a kid, I thought, was that like a bass guitar? And it's actually like this very, very long metal beam with strings on it. And it's it kind of is a bass it guitar, is, it is a, Yeah, and it's played with an artillery shell. And it was, it was built, or it was built for, it was definitely played by Craig Huxley, who as a child actor, Craig Hunley, was on, um, he's one of the kids and, and the children shall lead, right. little redheaded kid. And um, He wasn't the Gorgon. No. <laughs> So it was a it was a custom built thing that had been based on a couple of beams by uh, other musicians. There's a guy named Francisco Lupica, I think, mm-hmm. and it just had this really cool sound. And Goldsmith, in his career, always sought out interesting sounds, and he always it's sort of the easiest and smartest thing you can do as a composer is if you're going to come up with an original melody, well, even more immediate to the audience is just the sound itself. Mm-hmm. So he sought out, there's a percussionist named Emil Richards who has a, a large, large collection of weird percussion instruments that he's collected from all over the world. And that led to a lot of the weird sounds in the Planet of the Apes, mm-hmm. uh, four harps and four pianos in Chinatown. You know, he was a great colorist. And on Star Trek, the motion picture, he had his full symphony orchestra, but he also had this beam that uh, was used. It was like a concerto for beam and orchestra to give that weird, just alien sound for V'ger. And he also had a lot of, uh, of um, at their vintage now, but at the time they were cutting edge synthesizers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and weird things like, again, the pipe organ at Fox. And um, I'm trying to think. There, there For the Klingons, there were some of Emil Richards' They're called their various boobams and onklongs. I, I don't know the pronunciation. Yeah. But. And also that he uses some kind of a wiggle board as well in one of the cues. Yeah, I've, I'm, I'm sure he does. I forget what that thing's called. There's also something called a water phone, right. which is this metal thing with some metal spikes on it. That we that, hear inside. Yeah, feature. and you fill right. it with water and you bow it, and it and it's, it, it gives that sort of um, crinkly metal sound. I, I I can't make it with my mouth, and you don't <laughs> yeah. want me to try. But yeah. if you're if you're listening to it, you go, oh, all right. So, so he was, yeah, he was a, a brilliant colorist, and the beam was a was a large part of it. The, the beam was um, in a lot of uh, late seventies. It was in Meteor. It was in Prophecy. It was in the I think in the Black Hole. Yeah, it's in the Black Hole. Um, and then it, it's in the other. It's in Star Trek. Definitely in Star Trek's two and three by James Horner. And that sort of fell out of fashion, and then it broke. Yeah. <laughs> then he, he broke it, and like it fell off, coming off a truck or something. And when he put it back together, it never quite sounded the same. I think that what I love about the beam and, and Goldsmith to me, you know, that instrument is used in these other scores, as Lucas mentioned. But it's just a texture. It, it, what I love about Goldsmith's uh, kind of sound uh, things uh, effects are they always had kind of like a thought process or an idea behind them and uh, it's uh, there's a very specific effect and feeling you get from the these kind of gong hits it's terrifying and it it, it just says immediately that there's th- this thing that's just in- huge and incomprehensible uh, and he said he created this whole kind of language for something that you're supposed to never be able to understand. And it's one of the most effective uh, 
approaches to characterizing V'ger in the movie. And one of the great things about it is that not only is it um, a percussive instrument, but, you know, the big bong hits, mm-hmm. <laughs> to, <laughs> to uh, quote a, a phrase, um, but it also is articulate, as it, much like a steel guitar. Yeah. Um, the the uh, the shell that is used on it is basically you bring it down and you hit it and you you bring it up the strings to you know make that big boom yeah and Gold, it's amazing Goldsmith uh, loved uh, pitch bends you can hear that in uh, Planet of the Apes and mm-hmm. he used like a a bass slide whistle or kind of sure. invented a bass slide whistle or he often used you know uh, horns or, or trombones to make that sound mm-hmm. uh, so he loved it. It created this very unsettling, kind of you know, disorienting mm-hmm. feeling that made you feel like you were in an alien it's a, it's environment. A, auditory vertigo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for this score, he also he listened to a lot of Ralph Vaughan Williams, mm-hmm. and um, the there's a, a, a Vaughan Williams symphony that has sort of a, a primordial version of da 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 mm-hmm. da da. It's different in the symphony, and they're just little. Bits of um, those those sort of moods of da 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 those things, which right. are also sort of reminiscent of vertigo, but everything's reminiscent of something. It's all how you put it together, um, except for one thing. What to get it to his the, point? The cheesy lyrics. Sean Cassidy's right. yeah. lyrics for Ilya's theme, which was rebranded. Star before time. Star yeah, before time. I looked time? that up in the liner notes. Branded is a strong word. Uh, but you know, <laughs> given that wasn't no the idea that this, this was going to become a top ten hit, and they put it out as a forty-five. Well, they, they tried to make it a, a top ten hit. Well, that's the, that's, that's the thing about Jerry's career that kind of frustrated his uh, his attempts to or his chances to win Oscars is that he, he, you know, he was a real interior composer and a, and and a real master of moods and colors. And and ideas and textures and and affect and things that are subliminal and they don't quite mm-hmm. grab the audience the same way that that um, in 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 the big famous John Williams scores you leave the th- you you do leave Star Trek humming the theme but a lot of you don't really leave Alien humming the theme mm. you don't really leave Poltergeist humming the theme we do but <laughs> most um, well that one has a very beautiful lullaby but it, yeah. it just doesn't ex- it, it's just he was. Um, uh, I don't know. He was, he was like a method composer, and in fact, when you, when in interviews, he was sort of notoriously um, vague and a little bit cranky when you asked him how did he come up with this. He would just he was. Uh, we know we have journalist friends who said that he would remember on a movie, like who he liked, who he hated, how much he was paid, where he wrote it, when he wrote it, what was going on, everything about the movie. And then you ask, well, why'd you do that theme? Goes, I don't know. I heard it that way. Mm-hmm. So on Star Trek, he said, like, I don't know, it's in three a lot because I heard it in three. Mm-hmm. The theme is in six, eight, and mm-hmm. Ilya's theme is in, is in three, four. Uh, th- there are things we can describe musically that um, would take a long time and, and not not be as satisfying to your audience. But, um, yeah, he was, he, you know, he was a little odd that way. I can tell you how much he got paid, by the way. Do you want how, how much did he get paid? <laughs> he got paid. Now, this is not all the royalties from the publishing, right. but as a creative fee, he got 50 grand. To compose that score, That's, uh, yeah. considering how that was the high end, at the, time. the longevity of it, that ain't a lot of money, McGee. All that, that ended up being a lot of money with all the well, the with, public, the, with yeah. the every time ancillary, yeah, well, every time because the next generation, yeah, I mean, right out of time they use that theme, he yeah. gets. And he yeah, gets, this is, I mean, Star Trek is probably the piece of music that that survives. Uh, Goldsmith, and it's sad, sad to say because he had, you know, he had a like he did have at least one hit early in his career. This uh, what Doctor Kildare mm-hmm. song, and and it, for a while he was kind of integrating like you know pop and rock, like in the the Flint scores, m- maybe more effectively than a lot of the uh, other composers of his generation, but. Uh, and he did movies like Chinatown and Patton, which for a long time, you know, you, you would see movies and he even had to do this himself where, like, they'd say, well, I want you to make a reference to Patton, you know, put the Patton theme in here. And others, I remember watching WKRP in Cincinnati and they had, a, you know, some character, you know, was supposed to be remembering Lost Glories and they play the little Patton, you know, nah. the trumpet. So I, you know, would look for that. That has completely disappeared because nobody now remembers any movies made prior to 10 years ago. Uh, so a lot of Goldsmith's music has really disappeared. And it's really sad because he's one of the great, you know, I think 20th century American composers. But Star Trek, because 
that theme got used in Star Trek The Next Generation, and it wound up becoming kind of the official Star Trek theme. Uh, and it's still, uh, you know, uh, used in association with the franchise. That's kind of the one piece of music where people, if you ask someone, they, they're going to remember that. They know what well, that is. Yeah, he was famous for, or he wasn't, no one knew, knew really of him, but he, he did the Walton's theme, which mm-hmm. was a big hit. Mm-hmm. He did the Barnaby Jones theme. Right. Um, yeah. police, police story. Right. He also... He he also like sort of to, to his to the day he died sort of said he didn't really get Star Trek, like he. We have a friend who was his agent uh, in the in the last uh, chunk of his career, and our friend Richard Kraft said, told a story where he went over to Jerry's house. I might have told this on the show last time, and and it, there it was there he was starting on Insurrection, and Jerry was in the process of scoring the opening chase where Data goes a little crazy. And it's missing all these visual effects. So when they're just watching the video, it's a little incomprehensible. And so Richard says, like, uh, you know, what's going on here? And Jerry says, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, if that's in fact true, if he didn't know what Star Trek was, I like his idea of what Star Trek was very, very much and how that... um, influenced, actually, our perception to what Star Trek is. Yes, and that's a larger topic, which is that it's, I can't remember what the joke is, it's like Star Trek as a feature film, wait a minute, but isn't Star Trek supposed to be slow and boring? And maybe you guys will take offense at that, but Star Trek was always kind of the anti-movie. I had a, all right, I'll talk out of school again. I had a, just one of the few meetings I've ever had in my life, like eight or 10 years ago with some guy at Bad Robot. And um, I don't remember, I, I won't even tell how or why they came about, but he said, yeah, you know, he's no longer there. Like Star Trek to us is kind of like Pepsi. It's just, it's like this great brand that everyone knows, but you, it's just not Coke and it's never going to be. Are you? And so they're rolling their eyes here, mm-hmm. but you know, it, it's, they tried to make it into Coke and they found out they just couldn't. And so but bringing and it new back- New Coke to, was a real disaster yeah, too. But bringing it back to Jerry, he, <laughs> you know, that's the perfect theme for Star Trek because it's- you know, it's it's about exploring. It, it's it, it's like a pacifist march. You know, it's it's for the future. It's for this glittering future, a successful future, this optimistic future. But it's not quite warlike. It's not mm-hmm. it's not militaristic, even though it. And the way he um, in the score, it's 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 really quite brilliant. The way he had. It's uh, not a march. It's a processional. Yeah, I so I. It's so, a celebration well, rather than a. I mean, Direction. That's, y- yes, you could say that. I mean, it's a it's a it's a six eight march. No, you you know what I mean. I though. do know what you mean. And then the way he has these figures, so it's a way to have it be propulsive and melodic without just having someone slamming on on snare drums. He doesn't use those are there as accents, but it's not the focus. So, um, it is a strange movie, and it's sort of the last of its kind. In that, as Jeff says, it was. These sequences are kind of incomplete, and they need the music not just to, to sort of push us along, but to actually fill in the concept. And it's part of, it's part of an artifact of how they wrote the movie, which I would characterize as incredibly stupid. Um, and it's partly an artifact of Bob Wise and the movies he used to make. Mm-hmm. And and it was kind of at the end of that era where oh it's got an overture and it's this the it's, second to last overture if you don't count is. hateful eight i well it was it after a black hole no it was before black hole yeah. black hole was the last overture yeah it was a different era when they still had this vestige of oh it's this you know this big long ben hur type movie that mm-hmm. you're going to go to and you know wear your nice clothes to the theater and and it wasn't it was really that the, the last of its kind as opposed to being the first of a bunch of you know twelve-year-old kids waiting around the for the for the blockbuster. It's not an it's not an action adventure. It's um, it's very cerebral and well ba- and, bouncing and odd. Bouncing back to Ilya's theme, which you know I I think the the record the ver- there's various recordings of the uh, of the song that uh, Ilya's theme is, but um, that's another one of these pieces that they recorded several times because they had nothing else to record.
and it was very uh i think am i wrong that he sort of came up with that theme that was his first completed theme right? I, I i think so i haven't looked at it yeah um but it's 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 related somehow to the other thematic uh pieces in the film but on its own it's this an amazingly beautiful sort of uh, 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 lyrical, even without words, uh, piece. And you would think that it, it wouldn't go along with this film, but it completely does. And uh, the fact that they use it for the overture um, to set the mood uh, kind of tells you more about what the bigger picture of it is, at least in Goldsmith's mind, I think. I think, too, also, um, when we, were, we did the show the last time on the music, we all talked about our favorite uh, movie, uh, music from uh, the history of Star Trek. And, and, and we were, it was rightly pointed out to us that no one said, how could no one have said Ilea's theme? And, of course, they were right, because Ilea's theme is just such a beautiful, brilliant piece of music. And uh, it, it, it kind of... You know, it's not as memorable as something like, in some ways, as, you know, we, we, we talked about, I guess, you know, even the Klingon theme, you know, it's hummable. And mm-hmm. the, we talked about, you know, the Doomsday Machine and, and all these different pieces of music that we talked about. Are, and, but yet, Ilea's theme is, is, is such a stunning and uh, effective and just lyrical piece of music. And to me, it's, it's most closely related to the original TOS theme. It, it is sort of in that same vein, actually. You mean the long line? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think that people overlook it because they overlook Ilea. I mean, there's no real affection for that for that character. Or that I, like I, I don't know about that. I like Ilea. I, don't know about I like you know, Persis. God, you know. You know I, I, I think I it's just know. most people just I don't mean, notice I, anything. I, I, I and it's not even <laughs> really, there's no real love story in the movie. There was, well, there is, actually. Well, that, yeah. The, the, Decker like, unit. Have you seen the film? Right. All right. So if you want to pick a fight about this movie... I, I've seen this movie more times than I can count, as sure we all have here. But you know, I it's I always will watch it. I have a lot of affection for. It. I love the design, the music, the world they create. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it, I still find it so profoundly disappointing and flawed. And I think that uh, I think that um, to deny that is just a little cuckoo. I mean, it, it's I can tell you exactly. <laughs> I deny where it, nothing. Yep, I'll tell you exactly where it goes. <laughs> I'll tell you exactly where it goes bad. Now, there are a lot of things that go bad about it, but just as, as like in the narrative, so they so they do the transmission and they start going through the cloud. Mm-hmm. Now we have five minutes of we're going in the cloud, listening to music, watching people's faces, looking at the pictures. Right, amazing visual. Effects. But we're also looking at the pictures. Yes, it stops, and then they go again. There's another five minute piece. So now it's ten minutes of narratively the same thing. Right. Ten minutes, and then they stop. Then Ilea, they have the thing with the probe, and she gets zapped. And then what happens? They go forward, and it's another five minutes. So you have a twenty-minute chunk of this movie mm-hmm. as we're getting to the end of Act Two, and it's fifteen minutes of watching the stupid pictures, and nothing. It's just—it's not how you write a movie. Well, because it's an experience. It's just bad writing, man. There's no way. There's no way I, th- I think you're thinking Mark, of it in the wrong way. Don't you do this for a real? You, this is your. You guys, this you—you make a living. It's, writing it's painterly. It's pain. It's not good. I mean, I think it is. Influ- it's defective. And, and it was an attempt to do, you know, their version of, of 2001, which is also very, you know, uh, first person. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, they, but, know, but they it's, knew but they it's messed hard. up. You couldn't combine, uh, you know, the, the sterility. There was kind of this icy brilliance of 2001. Mm-hmm. That was this whole other aspect of the film that, that Star Trek is the opposite of. It's Star Trek's all about emotions and getting you in right. the faces of the characters. And there was always... A, a big schism between, and they talked about that on, during the making. Like that, you know, there's a line where DeForest Kelly's like, "You have to show close-ups of the actors. Why aren't you? You know, that's how what, how we did it on TV, and that's what we kind of all loved about the the TV show. So it, it's this weird mix of you know the kind of attempt at the sterility well, of well, Kubrick <laughs> and and emotion. I'll tell I, you something about that. It's worth hearing. This one. So in that Return to Tomorrow book that we mm-hmm. published, that oral history, Leonard Nimoy at one point, at the time, in 79 or 80, says, you know, the first time I realized we had, a, I'm paraphrasing, had a problem is I had a meeting at Bob Wise's condo in Century City. And I walked in and the decor was so modern and severe and like an impersonal and cold. I thought, uh-oh. And I <laughs> he was right. It's Bob Wise. He was a lovely man, but he had that aesthetic, 
And it worked for the Andromeda strain, but I don't think it worked for But Star it's Trek. the last of the big films to have a Kubrickian influence. It's like, Star, at that point, Star Wars began to influence all the subsequent science fiction, but this is like almost the last big blockbuster yeah. to, to, to where 2001 was this dramatic influence on. And you can see it. And like 2001, uh, you know, it, it's brilliant in a lot of ways and it's slow in others. And uh, but, you know, the aesthetic is 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 forward thinking and, and, and unique. And uh, but no matter know, how we consider about the pace, we can all agree that the music binds it together. Are you trying to get back on topic? <laughs> I am, actually. Right. I never okay. yeah. It's funny because the, the, you know... It even binds the galaxy e- together. Even, right. it, you know, Star Trek after, by sort of this course correction with the Wrath of Khan, you know, Star Trek, even it got back to the character interaction, but it became, you know, this rigid formula where you had to have like an evil villain to mm-hmm. be destroyed, which was... The op- they never did that in the original s- series. They it was all sometimes. they they would have a villain, but you, it was uh, th- there was always some kind of motivation. And the b- most memorable episodes were about discovering that this monster or whatever we, you know wasn't what we thought it was. And that's what the, like the Doomsday know, Machine. V- the V'ger was all about that. It was a <laughs> well, rehash right. of previous episode ideas. The, the key idea to Star Trek is that you win by understanding, mm-hmm. and you don't win through violence. And that's not something that you that's can sell a much to kids. Discussion as discussion that I would happily like have with you as to whether or not I actually think that's necessarily true, um, because I think that Captain Kirk in that original series was much more of a John F. Kennedy figure. There was well, a whole, was, there was a lot less you know peace, love, and understanding back then than, uh, than we might think, as they like to say. But I will say in Star Trek: The Motion Picture's defense that number one that that score that beautiful score would not have been possible with any of the other films, That's like number right. one, regardless of how that movie was developed, right. um, and the, the the process of shooting it and when things were available, it just it wouldn't have fit. And I think that the what the score really does is it elevates that film and Absolutely. it elevates the visuals. Um, and as Darren says, it turns it into an experience. Um, I'm like one of those lunatics who really loves the motion picture. I think that the director's edition is a uh, is a is a great improvement because I think it fixes a lot of the pace. Um, I, I think that there are some problems that um, persist regardless because because simply you can't you can't create something where there was nothing before. But but everything that I loved about that movie I think is on even more display and without losing what's really special about that score. The fact that you can just sit in it. Um, and listen to it and feel something mm-hmm. from it, yet at the same time not feel like um, the music is just dictating an emotional experience um, in lieu of anything interesting or good happening on screen. It's actually quite well matched to what's happening on screen. But yeah, how I, much I, better I, would it have been with the Herbie Hancock score? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think what what uh, you know, Goldsmith, it fits in with kind of the the opening narration of Star Trek. It's all about strange new worlds, and there's there's you know, Goldsmith creates not only this entire world with this score, but also these kind of individual environments and worlds, like we were talking about earlier, the Vulcan world, the Klingon world, the Federation, the Enterprise, V'ger, it, they're all very distinct and, and very immersive. You just kind of exist inside them when you're kind of experiencing the movie. You know, people say it's slow. Some people, some people say it's boring. Could you imagine what this film would have been without the Jerry Goldsmith score? No. Do, how much is there a score that elevates a movie? I mean, it, you could count them on your hand. Psycho, Star Trek, the motion picture. Star uh, Wars. Star Wars, mm-hmm. which are completely that. elevated by uh, the score. I mean, Star Trek yeah. the Motion Picture belongs in that pantheon. That movie is nothing without the score. Right. There's a quote from Danny Elfman where he, he says that, you know, prior to like Dolby sound coming in, that like the music was like 50% of the impact of a, of a motion picture. Mm-hmm. And that's, you could, I'd say with this movie, it's like 60, <laughs> 60 to 70%. It really drives the movie. And yeah, you can't imagine it, the movie without it. You can look at those, uh, there's that uh, kind of teaser uh, oh, yeah. thing the, that the, has music the, from right. like the Marathon Man, yeah, right. and yeah. And so that gives you a little idea. That's some, it seems a little bit more ordinary and maybe just like a straight action film with that music. 
uh, but it gives Sky you an idea what it might Zulu. have been. And <laughs> Miss Uhura. Uhuru, I think he was. Who else could it have been at that time, if not Jerry or Williams? John Perry. But he was busy Ooh, doing the black, black hole. hole. Yeah. That, he, that would not have been it. Well, I, I love, I love I the black know. hole. Yeah. Black hole's yeah. better than Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that score. But awesome. I love that score for uh, black yeah. hole. Both themes. Yeah. Because the, the <laughs> big crazy. 80s guys were a little bit after that. I'm trying to think right. who was who would have been, who were the big uh, name composers. Maurice Shar, Elmer Bernstein. David Shire. David, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, those were great composers. It is a, it's a perfect Shire score had done, him. actually, you know, the Hindenburg, the Hindenburg which is a Wise. big epic right. movie right. for yeah, Robert Wise. So I wonder if he was ever considered. I'd probably not, you know. Um I think Goldsmith, you know, like I said, he was the natural, he was the science fiction, you know, kind of brand name composer, the guy that you associated with big science fiction movies at the time. Now, how did it affect Jerry? Because, of course, we all know the stories about how Robert Wise had a hand carry the print to the premiere because at wet because it literally they, they printed it just in time uh, because that's how close to the release and that they were... Um, you know, uh, there's that, that famous picture, which I love, of all the film cans on a soundstage at Paramount because they, they almost couldn't make the prints in time. to the, And so the, st- the first prints were going to New York and then to, to the Westwood screenings, they were hand carrying them from right. the lot and, to Westwood to make and it. some original screenings on the opening day started without the final can being there. Yes. <laughs> because, of course, there are reel changes. So they would yeah. get the first couple of reels, and then they would be getting printing the last reel and sending it to the theaters just in time yeah, to make the reel change. suboptimal. <laughs> um, I mean, this, this is what Star Trek was was up it's against. A photo finish, literally. So, what, what, you know, how, how did that impact? You know, at the very end, you know, on Jerry and and and, you know, was he able to make any adjustments in the music for the final visual effects? And you know, no, they couldn't even mm. adjust the movie for the visual yeah, effects. No. That's what we were talking about, and that's what I think hurts hurts the film. I mean, this is, brings back to the the music. So when they when they cut together, when they got those effects for for the cloud, and that's the the cloud, and then I figure the V'ger flyover mm-hmm. in the force field, they couldn't, they had no time to cut them, and they couldn't cut them because the music was yeah. locked to the rough cut. Right. So you're watching the rough cut for those 20 minutes. The funny thing, that, and that amazes me, is we just sort of found out this in the past what six months, or that this footage from the Klingon sequence kind of resurfaced that oh, showed yeah. that there was actually a little bit more to that, that the, all the Klingon ships were firing. Uh, and that just stuns me because of all the sequences in the movie, that was literally the one done at the very last minute, mm. and how they had any time to like think about or adjust that. But but it, it whatever Goldsmith scored, there's no ed- edits in that music. Mm-hmm. He he scored the finished sequence so that you know they kind of in made, the theatrical the, made those cuts. Yeah, in the theatrical version. Yeah, what, what well, there are edits. You in... could, yeah, but you couldn't. You, you had to make those edits very thoughtful with the well, music, yeah. Yeah. yeah, or else it would sound terrible. Absolutely. He finished recording uh, November 29th. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, week, <laughs> and the movie <laughs> came out before, December 7th. Yeah. 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 See, what yeah. people don't understand the today, like literally special effects companies are delivering days before the press screening. Mm-hmm. Right. Because of digital, they're finishing it's movies. It's much easier. Yeah, like a day or two before the movie screens, and I've heard of them making changes even after yeah. the press screening. And, but and before. that's you know they they are, yeah that's why and it drives you know John Williams crazy. It was driving him crazy on the Force Awakens that that now, with digital editing now that you're just constantly changing mm-hmm. individual sequences so much. I mean Goldsmith was dealing with you know a crazy situation, but he was still working with sort of completed sequences. He just wasn't seeing everything. But uh, he, he, I don't know what he would have done. And that, to me, is why, like, a lot of film music now is is so boring mm-hmm. because there, there's no time to devote any thought it's, to it. It's so remarkable, which is what you said. I mean, you think of this photochemical process where, I mean, he finishes at the end of November and, 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 then, there, you know, and then the premiere in Washington at the Smithsonian was a week before. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, it's incredible. And, and what an accomplishment. It also explains why there were never any 70 millimeter prints of the movie. And very few sound effects. The sound yeah. design. Well, and that's another thing. Spare. I'm glad you brought yeah. that up because, you know, a lot of these science fiction movies, the music gets buried by sound effects. So that tends to get the, the pr- in the mix, tends to get right. the emphasis. But they didn't have time. It's something you rectified in your director's edition, you and your guys, but um, that there's so little sound effects because they didn't have time to right. put sound yeah, effects in. Yeah, there's not a, a whole sound environment, and that that's another big difference. That's something that was you know at work in the original series. The sound effects were very discreet, uh, and so music could be more at the forefront and drive a lot more. And and in you know the music in something like Planet of the Apes or Star Trek the Motion Picture works 
as a, a, like sound effects too, mm-hmm. because it, it it helps create the culture right. and the, the whole environment, the the future, everything that you're kind of look looking you, at reinforces. You know that. what I found fascinating? I just read uh, Bill Hunt wrote about this. I guess when they just re released in 4K uh, Batman, the 1989 Batman. Um, Tim Burton went in and actually replaced, they did a new sound mix, some of the sound effects because some of the effects that were in the original Batman were just stock from other movies. They didn't have time. Mm-hmm. And this was the 89 biggest blockbuster mm-hmm. of the year. They didn't have time to create the sound effects. So they were just, it wasn't the Wilhelm scream, but they were pulling stuff from other movies to throw in because, and and here we are 30 years later, and he was creating proprietary new sound mm-hmm. effects because it was something that always bothered him that he wanted unique effects rather than just doing from a library. That's and, amazing. But if he actually had brought in the Wilhelm scream, <laughs> choice. Jaren, I have a question for you, which is when you were doing the the director's edition, when you were editing that film, doing such a remarkable job with it, what was your approach to editing the music and kind of preserving um, what Goldsmith had done for the theatrical cut? Well, um, Mike Mattesino and and Robert Wise uh, worked together to create the final cut of the director's edition. Um, But for those, specifically the, you know, the extended Goldsmith uh, uh, pieces um there was every effort to because they were written this way in in sections to cut a section here and there to get half a section and take that out to try and pare it down to the you know as much as you could without breaking the whole structure of it um and when mike talked to uh, jerry goldsmith later and told him what was going on uh, Jerry said, "Oh, thank God, because uh, that—that's exactly what I intended to, you know, to ha- be able to give you some flexibility in it, because it's uh, it's the process of writing for blank leader, you know, let him sort of go a little bit wild, and and but he was able to structure it enough so that you can take pieces out." And not have everything go into the. He, yeah, he would. U- Jerry would use like uh, these like rhythmic motifs and you know uh, ostinatos, repeat, repeated mm-hmm. uh, phrases. I actually asked Fred Steiner about that because he did. Fred Steiner did that. Obviously, he worked on the movie, but he on the original show. I asked him why he used you know all these repeating phrases, and he said that he did that intentionally to make the music easier to edit because right. you're going to be able to so you shot, can add or right. subtract. Yeah, exactly. I, I actually made a. I just want to boast that I made a little yeah. contribution to the director's cut because the, they kind of extended the scene where Ilya is like healing Chekhov. Yes. Uh, and it's again, there were very little or no sound effects, and there's this whole scene where she's using her, you know, powers, and it, there was no music there. And I suggest, I said, like, what you, sh- you know, I suggested to Mike Medicino, this would be a great place. That was a place where that theme could actually function and kind of right. show her abilities. And Mike found a, a, a version of her theme that hadn't actually been used in the movie, so. Very proud uh, of that. I do want to plug something that your your listeners will find interesting if they're sort of more musicologist types. That there was a, a thesis written on on this score that um, the in the 1980s uh, the, the writer let us uh, scan and put it Film Score Monthly. So if you go to filmscoremonthly.com and look under resources, mm-hmm. it's called Star Trek mm-hmm. Thesis. And it's very long and very detailed, and it has musical examples. And I think wow. your, your yeah, folks it's will, great. He gets enjoy into that. all the kind of influences and the Vaughn Williams stuff, mm-hmm. and and yeah. shows you where all that came what, from. What do you think the legacy of this film score is, uh, and how do you think Jerry's subsequent uh, efforts on the franchise compared? I I love his score to Star Trek V, and it's a completely different approach, and it, it sort, of, sort of shows you maybe what he might have done if Star Trek the Motion Picture had been in a completely different movie mm-hmm. and be, had been a more action-character-based... Star Trek V is based. the Western version. Yeah, of it. yeah. Uh, and his style had, had you know evolved a lot by the time he made that movie, and it's a very different approach. But uh, I, I love that score. His other e- efforts for like the Next Generation movies, uh, I don't love as much. Although all of them are, you know, he was a master, and anything he wrote generally was probably better than what somebody else would have done. Um, I, I apparently, when he was working on Star Trek V, he had written some uh, different 
uh, arrangement of the end titles, mm. and he had a, a, a orchestrator who will now Nancy. crucify crucify name Nancy, Nancy Beach. <laughs> she had worked on uh, Leviathan, and he she arranged this, and there was some technical mistake in it, and they started to record it, and apparently it was like really fascinating and like this super cool thing, but the orchestra couldn't play it because it's the way it had been orchestrated. And uh, Goldsmith yelled at her and never hired her again. And But that w- seemed to be almost like a turning point where he wasn't going to invest a lot into the end title sequences. Mm-hmm. So the, the end title sequences for most of his uh, later Star Trek scores, you know, are just straight, like here's the maybe one other theme I wrote for it, but it's just the, all, that same version of the, the Star Trek Marge. I don't know if I read that much into it. I think that if you look at, if you just look at the more recent movies and the way they're cut, not even the J.J. movies, but the 90s movies, mm-hmm. they're just faster. You know, they'll do a, a space shot early in the movie. you got to do it around 11 minutes in, da 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 and then they cut right to the bridge and, well, where are we going now? Yeah, they're much you know, shorter. It's, it's, it's just something that happens. I don't think this movie is really... It was. It, I, I don't think it's influential. I, I mean, I think that we like it, but I think that if you want to look at the movies that were influential, it's like The Terminator, Aliens, you know, they did, the camera and stuff, the violence, the, upping the action, upping the violence, upping the visceral nature of the... I think that's what we're still living in. And I think that this was really like the last 50s roadshow movie ever. Yeah. yeah, interesting. I would totally agree. So, Ashley, uh, we'll wrap up by asking you, what do you think the legacy is, and how do you, what do you think uh, of the uh, Jerry's post-Star Trek, uh, uh, post-Star Trek, the motion picture Star Trek scores? Well, honestly, I, I think, other than, than obviously the Alexander Courage, no piece of music is more associated with Star Trek in any form than uh, than the, the theme that uh, that Jerry Goldsmith wrote for Star Trek, the motion picture. Um, I, I think it's it's iconic. And, um, you know, I, I think it elevated some of the, the, again, he elevates everything, but he elevated some of those next generation movies in ways that, frankly, I don't know that they deserved to be elevated. And if you want to see the difference between um, a movie that is striving to be great, that's truly elevated by its score and a movie that is just kind of a movie and um, has a score that should elevate it, it's Star Trek The Motion Picture versus, say, Star Trek Nemesis. Mm-hmm. Um you know, but uh, I, you know, I think that the way that I think about Star Trek is largely informed by that score. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that it, it, I remember going to see that movie when I was, you know, uh, but a lad. Uh, and a lot of my feelings about that film do come from that score, sure. um, that sense of, you know, things are, are very large and they're frightening and there's a funky bass line off the starboard bow. And where did that uh, come from? To this day, I didn't know where that funky bass line came from. And play that now funky I know. bass line, white boy. That's right. <laughs> play, play the funky bass line, V'ger. Um Wow, yeah. I mean, uh, God, what a... Remember the first LP? You all own it? Of course. LP? I remember it well. And that gorgeous Bob Peacock, fantastic. Was that a success in stores? Do you know? I mean, it's... I don't know. It was. Um, I know that. I, I I know that Columbia Records paid six hundred and fifty thousand dollars to Paramount to basically advance them the recording costs. Right. I'm pretty sure there's a quote from Goldsmith saying it was one of his better selling. Yeah, albums, they, it so. wasn't as it didn't sell as well as Star Wars, which is what they were yeah, hoping sure. for. But basically, Columbia Records wrote him a giant check to pay for the recording, and then. And then um, it sort of fell out of print, and there were some licensing issues that I personally fixed. <laughs> You're welcome, Star Trek fans. And I'll tell you how I fixed it. There was such a big fight between Sony Music and Paramount mm. over – I can't get into it. It's not appropriate. But it was – something was done in a way that was not good, and it was unresolved, and it was always going to be a fight. And I was the one who said – why don't we just leave it alone? Let's just agree we're never going to solve that mm-hmm. and do a new version, give it to La Land, and you split the baby in two. Hmm. You just split the right royalties and just agree that we're never going to solve this old problem. And kicking the can down the road works. You're the Solomon of Dude, Star it worked. Trek. It worked. It worked. I fixed this. Well. I, I, no, well, seriously. Thank I will you, take Lucas, because we're indebted to you for uh, La Land putting out this remarkable uh, three-disc album which has all the music from Star Trek The Motion Picture, much of it unused as well. And it's uh, it's given us many, many, many hours Transfer of pleasure. Transfer 192K so that dogs can be impressed. 
Well, there you go. Okay, on that note, I want to thank our guests, uh, Lucas Kendall, Jeff Bond, and Ashley E. Miller for joining us here on Unglorious Trexperts. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcasts, like The 430 Movie, every Friday, in which a group of writer and producers curate fantasy theme weeks of classic movies and overlook masterpieces, like Howard the Duck. Um, <laughs> right, Ashley? No. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, this summer on The CW, don't forget to check out the second season of Dean Devlin's fantasy series, The Outpost, and the new sci-fi action-adventure series from creator, executive producer, me, uh, Pandora. Also, look for Best Movies Never Made every Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as the new Star Wars podcast, The Rebel and the Rogue, every Thursday night. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts, and you can follow us on Inglorious Trek on Twitter or Inglorious Trexperts on Instagram. Also, a very special thanks to Bill Ritter, wearing his Inglorious Trexpert shirt, available at Inglorious Trek, and everyone here at Electric Surge Network, including producer Natalie Mascali and Cynthia Hodge. So until next Saturday... Keep on trekking, and gloriously, of course. Engage. This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.